0: Thank you all so, so, much for coming out to Hugo House tonight um, in celebration of this really, really incredible book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, from Alexander Chee. Um, I'm Christine Texera, I work on education and programs at Hugo House. I am very happy that tonight Alex will be in conversation with the wonderful Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, who's the author of The End of San Francisco, Why Are Faggots So Afraid of Faggots? and her third novel, Sketch to See, which comes out this fall in October. So to get the evening started, I want to welcome Matilda to the stage. Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming. How's my voice on the mic? Can you hear me in the back? Love it, love it. Thanks for coming on this beautiful day. Anyone standing out there, feel free to come in. You can sit on the front if you want to sit on the floor. Join the festivities. Um, I'm thrilled this evening to welcome Alexander Chi, whose new book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, is just out. Are we ready? How to Write an Autobiographical Novel is a meticulously crafted collection of essays about exile and home, the impossible dream and its loss. It's a dream in spite of loss, about our country of violence, both intimate and structural, a history of queer and queenly dreaming in one particular life, our lives, a communal experience, this grief, a dream of writing, a failure, the failure to write another history, what we can and cannot create. Listen to this. Alexander Chi writes the novel not coming not from the mind but the heart which is why it cannot fit in your head and also a novel like all written things is a piece of music the language demanding you make a sound as you read it how to write about an how to write an autobiographical novel while not a novel at all, is this music. Alexander chief's first novel, Edinburgh, won the Lambda Editor's Choice Prize and was a publisher's weekly best book of the year. His second novel, The Queen of the Night, was a bestseller and a best book of the year from NPR, The Boston Globe, Buzzfeed, Esquire, The San Francisco Chronicle, Time Out, Self, Jezebel, The Portland Mercury, Electric Literature, and M-Trippy Magazine. He's a contributing editor at The New Republic, an editor-at-large at at Virginia Quarterly Review, and a critic-at-large at at the LA Times. His work has appeared in the Best American Essays 2016, The New York Times Magazine, Slate, Tin House, among others. And he's an assistant professor of English at Dartmouth College. Oh, associate. Sorry, darling. Tenured associate professor at Dartmouth College. Please welcome. Alexander Chi. Oh, and we're going to switch things up a little bit this evening. We're going to start with conversation Berlin style, according to Alex. I'll trust him on that. And then there's going to be reading, then more conversation, then reading, and then Q&A, so get ready for everything.
1: I know Berlin style sounds like it should be really different from... Come to the
0: cabaret.
1: Maybe we'll get there.
0: Uh, So one theme that keeps coming in the book, Alex, I think, uh, is the theme of home as a place of exile. And I think I was struck by the last line of the first essay, which to me is where that theme first comes in. And in that essay, you write about spending a summer as an exchange student in Mexico when you were 15. And the last line of that essay is America Now, the Exile of Me. And I'm wondering if you could talk about this feeling of exile and how it works its way through the book, in and out. Sure. I think,
1: you know, uh, a lot of the book is about misidentifications um, and how that are also identifications both at the same time. So in that essay, uh, what happened is that I went to Mexico for the summer, and for the first time in my life, uh, since having moved to Maine, there was a context for me, which is uh, which is that I was mixed, and I wasn't in Maine. I had been made to feel like a extraordinary object, um, and you know was routinely questioned about my parentage, uh, this question, um, how did your parents meet? It was like a question that my parents', my parents friends and, my, and my, friend's friend, my friends' parents would ask me. And it took me years to figure out that not everyone gets asked that question. <laughs> um, how many of you have been asked that question? OK. Um, I mean, I actually knew the story. The story is a good story. <laughs> um, and I actually I wrote it up for uh, Granta in 2008. Um, and it's online. Uh, it's called Portrait of My Father. Um, and it was, uh, it was for their father's issue. Um, it'll probably be the preface to a book eventually about uh, about my father and his family and, and me. But in any case, the being in Mexico was just sort of, people would, there was a word for it, which wasn't really, it wasn't really my place, but it made a space for me, which is this word mestizo, which does you mix, speak Spanish, probably know. It's It just means literally mixed. Um, and it's used to identify people who are usually mixed native and white. Uh, and the, the thing that I discovered next was that I could pass as Mexican. And my Spanish that summer got good enough that my host brother um, made a bet with me. He wanted to take me to a party and pass me off as Mexican. And if I succeeded, I won a case of beer. <laughs> Um But I won sort of more and less than that at the same time, which is to say I had this new feeling of feeling like there was some kind of place for me there, which was a completely illusory uh, summer feeling. But you know, when it was over, I found that I missed it. And that was what that sentence is about. And it's a similar, uh, it's a similar feeling to a later essay in the book, uh, Girl, which is about um, the first, how the first time I did drag, I made my face up, and I was finally comfortable with it. And it was this kind of uncanny feeling of looking at this very artificial image that I had created of myself through makeup that also felt entirely natural. Um and, and then it was uh, that illusion and that sense of belonging was deep in that night when uh, I found that I was passing, actually at times as a woman. And that's not usually the point of drag. <laughs> the point of drag is actually that you can tell that you're not passing, right? Like that they can tell and you can tell and usually unless you're unless you are experimenting with Uh, an identity in a different way and a lot of trans people have talked to me about how um, how they first uh, passed as gay essentially and when they did drag they first experienced themselves in uh, what they felt like was their actual uh, their actual identity Um, and that was part of how they came to know who they were I mean for me it was also that night, I had to ask myself, because like, I had chosen a blonde wig, was I trying to pass as a white woman? Was I in drag as a white woman? Was I? You know, These were all things that were running through I had that night, and that's what that essay chronicles as well.
0: And I think that in that essay, you say something. I'm a citizen of a nation that has only ever existed in the future, a nation where nationalism dies of confusion. And I think, to me, that in a way, that's the power of drag, right? Or, or of protest, which you also invoke in other essays, which is to break down the borders, to shake things up so that a middle ground can exist, so that an exterior can exist, so there isn't only this dominant center that's unquestioned and unchallenged. And I wonder if you want to talk about that idea, I think I love that idea of a, of a country where nationalism dies of confusion. And, and is, there a, is that ever a possibility here? You
1: know, I think that, that line is probably like uh, aspirational at best. Like a sort of, uh, almost like a, it's rhetorical, it's meant to point at something that will probably never happen. I remember doing research into the fiction of George Sand, and discovering that she, critics thought of her as much of her work as belonging to something called idealist fiction, which um, was a kind of offshoot of fiction that is thought to have failed. And um, she was essentially like writing, writing about spaces that she wanted to exist more than spaces that actually existed, um, and characters in lives. She was writing her way into, uh, into the future. Um, she was, if you don't know this about her, she was the first woman in France to divorce uh, successfully, and she did so so she'd go and be a writer uh, in 1835, and then she and then she did. She was a, a writer for the rest of her life, um, writing autobiographical novels a lot of the time and uh, which is part of my interest in her but also that idea of like you know that will to be the first you know to for her to be in her marriage and to decide I have to leave this I can't live like this I have to I have to be some way the world doesn't imagine is possible and then to go out and make that and then to keep making that You know that that was a really inspirational story for me to find and to think about and I think uh, it's a it's part of the thinking that you know is in the background to thinking like this
0: and do you think in the in the story girl that you're talking about you talk about sort of the power of uh, embodying this identity as a queen right and for me that to me, that, that was a really touching moment. That, because I think there's so much um, hostility, which you talk in the book, obviously, you know, from dominant straight worlds, but also, you know, an internalized shame and uh, femme phobia and hatred of femininity f- coming from gay and queer worlds. And sort of the embodiment of the queen, you know, as an empowered. Um, identity sort of challenging traditional gender norms and also imagining something else. So sort of what you're talking about, about that idealization in a certain sense. Would you say that it fits into that?
1: I think so. I mean my, I had a fascination early on with what I considered to be uh, femme beauty and uh, it was it was just some, it was this way in which I could see how the men I desired were attracted to it, in women, um, and so. Uh, and so I, I think that night that I was doing drag, I was I was pursuing, uh, I was pursuing that, you know, to see, see what was possible there. I, you know, the, the drag I did that night was inspired by, uh, Teresatana and you know, faster Pussycat cat kill kill, um, who is like one of the great. Um, uh, early Hapa icons, right? Like, um, but I didn't choose a black-haired wig. I choose a blonde-haired wig. I knew that. Um, but my mother's blonde, also. So it was a sort of like, my look that night was some kind of weird melding of my mom in the 60s and Tura Satana. <laughs> and, uh, and I think you know, the the way that I uh, was moving around that night also, and I'll, I'll read from the essay in a bit. Um, I realized that there were all these gestures that I knew because I had studied them so closely. Um, the thing that I didn't know that I experienced that night was uh, just how much violence women are always confronted with. And that was the next piece to to passing so like possessing that uh, beauty for a moment passing and then instantly being confronted with the possibility of violence and that was uh that was like a moment of going through the looking glass you know
0: maybe not do you want to read from that now sure great hair
1: the year is 1990 the place is san francisco the castro it is halloween night i'm in my friend john's bathroom Alone in front of the mirror, wearing a black turtleneck and leggings. My face glows back at me from the light of 12 100 watt bulbs. In high school, I learned to do makeup for theater. I did fake mustaches and eyelashes then, bruises, wounds, tattoos. I remember always being tempted then to do what I have just done now and always stopping, always thinking that I would do it later. This is that day. My face and the makeup I have just applied is a success. My high cheekbones, large slanting eyes, wide mouth, small chin, and rounded jaw have been restrung in base, powder, eyeliner, lipstick, eyebrow pencil. With these tools I have built another face on top of my own, unrecognizable, and yet I'm already adjusting to it. Somehow I have always known how to put this face together. My hands do not shake, but move with the slow assurance of routine. I am smiling. I pick up the black eyeliner pencil and go to the outer corners of my eyes, drawing slashes there and licking the edges of my fingers. I pull the lines out into sharp black points, the wings of crows, not their feet. I have nine moles on my face, all obscured by base. I choose one on my upper lip to the right where everyone inserts a beauty mark. I have one already and it feels like a prophecy. I dot it with the pencil. I pick up the lipstick and open my mouth in a no. I've always loved unscrewing lipsticks, and as the shining nub appears, I feel a charge. I apply the color, mauve frost, and then reapply it. And with that, my face shimmers a white sky, the mole a black planet, the eyes its ringed big sisters. I press my lips down against each other and feel the color spread anywhere it hasn't gone yet. The wig is shoulder length blonde hair, artificial, dynel doll hair like Barbie's, which is why I chose it. The cap shows how cheap the wig is, so I cut a headband out of a t-shirt sleeve and make it into a fall. The wig I put on last, without it you can see my man's hairline receding faintly into a widow's peak. You can see my dark hair, can tell I'm not a blonde woman or a white one or even a woman. It is a Valkyrie's headpiece and I gel it into place. The static it generates pulls the hairs out one by one. In an hour I'll have a faint halo of frizz. Blue sparks will fly from me when I touch people. John knocks on the door. Girl, he says through the door, aren't you ready yet? He's already finished, dressed in a sweater and black miniskirt, his black banged wig tied up with a pink bow. He has highlighted his cheekbones with rouge, which I forgo. He's wearing high heels. I have on combat boots. I decided to wear sensible shoes, but John wears fuck-me pumps, the heels three inches high. This is my first time. It is Halloween tonight in the Castro. We are both trying to pass, to be real. Only we are imitating very different women. What kind of girl am I? With the wig in place, I understand that it is possible I'm not just in drag as a girl but as a white girl or as someone trying to pass as a white girl. Come in, I yell back. John appears over my shoulder in the mirror, a cheerleader gone wrong, the girl who sits on the back of the rebel's motorcycle. His brows rise all the way up. Jesus, mother of God, he says. Girl, you're beautiful. I don't believe it. Believe it, I say, looking into his eyes. I tilt my head back and carefully toss my hair over my right shoulder in the way I've seen my younger sister do. I realize I know one more thing about her than I did before, what it feels like to do this and why you would. It's like your own little thunderclap. Scared of you, John says. You're flawless. So are you, I say. Where's Fred? Fred is my newest boyfriend, and I've been unsure if I should do this with him. But here we are. Are you okay? Fred asks, as if something has gone wrong in the bathroom. Oh my god, you're beautiful. He steps into the doorway, dazed. He still looks like himself, a skinny white boy with big ears and long eyelashes, his dark hair all of an inch long. He hasn't gotten dressed yet. He is really spellbound, though, in a way he hasn't been before, this I have never had this effect on a man, never transfixed him so thoroughly, and I wonder what I might be able to make him do now that I could not do before. Honey, he says, his voice full of wonder. He walks closer, slowly, his head hung, looking up at me. I feel my smile rise from somewhere old in me, maybe older than me. I know this scene. I have seen this scene a thousand times and never thought I would be in it. This is the scene where the beautiful girl receives her man's adoration, And now I am that girl. In this moment, the confusion of my whole life has receded. No one will ask me if I'm white or Asian. No one will ask me if I'm a man or a woman. No one will ask me why I love men. For a moment, I want Fred to stay a man all night. There's nothing brave in this. Any man and woman can walk together in love and unharassed in this country, in this world. And for a moment, I just want to be his overly made-up girlfriend all night. I want him to be my quiet, strong man. I want to hold his hand all night and have it be only that, not political, not dangerous, just that. I want the ancient reassurances legislated for centuries by mobs. He puts his arm around me, and I tip my head back. Wow, he says, even up close. Ever kissed a girl, I ask? No, he says, and laughs. Now's your chance. I say, and he leans in, kissing me slowly through his smile. My country. I am half white, half Korean, or to be more specific, Scotch, Irish, Irish, Welsh, Korean, Chinese, Mongolian. It's been a regular topic all of my life, this question of what I am. People will even tell me, like my first San Francisco hairdresser, Girl, you are mixed, aren't you? But you can pass, he said, as if this was a good thing. He said this as he scrutinized me in the mirror, looking at me, as if I had come in wearing a disguise. Passes what? I asked. White. You look white. When people use the word passing in talking about race, they only ever mean one thing, but I still make them say it. He told me he was Filipino. You could be one of us, he said, but you're not. Yes, I could be, but I'm not. I'm used to this feeling. As a child in Korea, living in my grandfather's house, I was not to play in the street by myself. Amerasian children then had no rights, as they usually didn't know who their father was and they could be bought and sold as domestic help or prostitutes or both. No one would check to see if I was any different from the others. One day everyone will look like you, people say to me all the time. I'm a citizen of a nation that has only ever existed in the future a nation where nationalism dies of confusion. I cringe whenever someone tells me I am a fine mix, that it worked well. What if it hadn't? After I read Eduardo Galliano's stories in Memory of Fire, I mostly remember the mulatto ex-slaves in Haiti, obliterated when the French recaptured the island, the mestizo Argentinian courtesans, hated both by the white women for daring to put on wigs as fine as theirs, and by the chalote slaves who think the courtesans put on airs when they do so. Galliano's trilogy is supposed to be a lyric history of the Americas but it read more like a history of racial mixing. I found in it a pattern for the history of half-breeds hidden in every culture. Historically we are allowed neither the privileges of the ruling class nor the community of those who are ruled. To each side that disowns us we represent everything the other does not have. We survive only if we are valued and we are valued only for strength or beauty, sometimes for intelligence or cunning. As I read those stories of who survives and who does not, I know that I have survived in all these ways, that these are the only ways I have survived so far. This beauty I find when I put on drag then, it is made up of these talismans of power, a balancing act of the self-hatreds of at least two cultures, an act I've engaged in my whole life here on the fulcrum I make of my face. That night, I want this beauty to last because it seems more powerful than any beauty I've had before, Being pretty like this is stronger than any drug I've ever tried. But in my blonde hair, I ask myself, are you really passing, or is it just the dark, the night, people seeing what they want to see? Each time I pass that night, it is a victory over these doubts, a hit off the pipe. This hair is all mermaid's gold. And like anyone in a fairy tale, I want it to be real when I wake up.
0: The one thing that struck me actually in the book, um, well, in that essay, but also in the book as a whole, is uh, you keep coming back to these moments of self-actualization um, that you experienced. That story you know, take place, takes place in 1990 in San Francisco. And there are other stories that also take place you know, uh, in the years you lived in San Francisco, which was 1989 to 1991. And it's just two years looking back but I think what comes through in the, in the, in the book is how much, uh, how much you learned, you know, as a queer person, as how, about your politics, about your sexuality, gender, about relationships, about what you believed in, about what you would fight for, about what you would create. Um, and I'm wondering if you think there's something about those two years and also about San Francisco in particular at that time period that formed you.
1: Oh definitely you know I think it was the first time I uh, I met other uh, queer men with my same background um, you now one of them I remember Rico Herrera was his name he took me under his wing and taught me how to drive a motorcycle um, and sold me his motorcycle which I then drove for the rest of my time there and it was like finally having a big brother who had like all of the all of the same kinds of uh, issues, thoughts, concerns uh, I'd never had that before, and it was a really powerful experience um, you know the but there was also this way in which it was the first time I also felt like I really belonged to a community or to a set of communities really interlocking communities and the, you know, the experience of being in ACT UP, being in coronation, um, going to the meetings, going to the protests, getting arrested, not getting arrested, <laughs> um, uh, all of that was a crucible as well. Uh, and I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I, I befriended at that time. They've, uh, they've stayed in my life, uh, all that. All those years, and I still I talked to a lot of them in the creation of this book, as well. You know, and Gerard Koskovich, uh, who is uh, LGBT historian, um, has he's been a great help both in uh, in the writing of this book and in the Queen of the Night.
0: Uh, you have uh, another uh, piece in the book um, called After Peter, uh, where you describe. Peter David Kelleran, uh, who was a lover of yours, who died of AIDS in 1994. And one of the lines in the book that I think struck me the most uh, is in that essay where you write, those of us in my generation who lived in San Francisco had to overcome the false impression that no one like us had ever existed before because the ones who might have greeted us when we arrived were already dead. And I moved to San Francisco in 1992, uh, so just after you left, (laughs) Um, but the same, that generational experience, you know, is so much to me how I was formed, you know, as a fag, as a queen, as a queer person, as an activist. And I think often the way that people talk about generations, I think is very uh, False. often. You know, people will just pick a year and be like, well, you're part of this generation, but I think a generation is really formed by experience. And, and in this case, you're talking about an experience both of uh, inspiration and instigation, love and intimacy, and also loss, right? And trauma.
1: But also just like, you know, I remember th- uh, so when I first moved to San Francisco, I had a job at this LGBT bookstore, A Different Light. Um, and one of my coworkers, one day, he said, just kind of out of the blue, he said, "You know, uh, in the old days, we would have blown each other by now." <laughs> and I, I was like, <laughs> "You know, it really was not my context." Uh, and and then he laughed, and the, it sort of moved along. But I, I was like. Is he hitting on me? Is he telling me about history? Is it both? You know, um, it was my first experience of like a what I what I think of this of is a kind of like. Um, so I've, I've since met many more of them. I was thinking about this the other night when I was in LA for LA Times Festival of Books and we were celebrating the life of John Retchie, you know, the life and work of John Retchie, who is still alive and. Uh, who was presented with uh, a kind of lifetime achievement award by the festival and by the LA Times, uh, the Kirsch Award, and it was given by, it's, the, it's named for a critic at the paper who had actually ruthlessly savaged uh, his work when he, was, uh, when he was a young man and first publishing. And the prize was given to him by the son of that critic gave him a little kiss on the cheek um, after he presented it and uh, you know and I brought this friend of mine who uh, you know he's he's like a, a kind of he's probably never gonna have a boyfriend and I don't really think it's a problem uh, sometimes he thinks it is sometimes he doesn't he just really likes having sex with guys but not really having them around, like, all the time. <laughs> he's, not the, he's not the marrying kind. Like, and, uh, and, you know, the, in the old days, he, he was more the norm, as it were. You know, like, I don't want to erase the experience of, like, the couples who existed back then, but I think there was at least a, a context and a place for what I think of as this kind of, like, friendly whoredom you know, where you uh you would you would have casual sex. Um you might have casual sex for years in the context of a relationship that was not like a dating relationship. And uh you know, it's something that I'm trying to write about now in um this adaptation I'm creating with my with my husband, because uh, I am the marrying kind. <laughs> um uh of the uh, of the biography of Newton Arvin who was a Smith College professor in 1960 who was arrested on gay pornography charges and, uh, and turned into a sting that swept up like 17 men in the community and ruined the lives of many of them uh, and the police took his they seized his notebooks and they went through them for names people in the community and they brought them all in for questioning um, and he lived he lived like in a kind of obsession with this one man but he had many sexual partners throughout the area and the community who were swept up in this and that's that's the kind of it's very it's, I was I, we've been finding it difficult to Portray in a two and a, a two-hour feature film because there really is not a context for how how these relationships exist. It seems like scattershot promiscuity, but it's not. It's like something else, you know. And I think um, that was that was the thing that we were trying to invent all over again, in some ways, in San Francisco when I arrived. But we were trying to do it uh like with the fear of aids with the you know the knowledge that at the time that i arrived there was one drug didn't work that great for everybody you know uh and and a lot of fear
0: and i think you conjure that really well um in the essay after peter uh you know where you're simultaneously talking about the lack of these models and I think you are also creating. Would you say you know that model through telling his story, right? You ask, you're like, why am I the one to tell this story? You know, I was never at the center of, uh, and you, then you list off different things, you know, communities or activism or or where am I now? And and then you say, well, I'm telling the story because it hasn't been told, right? And who 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 is going to tell the story if it's never told? I think it's kind of a similar thing you're saying to this story from 1960, um, where you're trying to conjure, you know, a life that existed then that was persecuted that came into the public eye through um, a kind of sex panic, right? And, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, into the late 90s, really, and then reoccurring, Uh, all through history, right, from the past into the future, you know, are these sex panics. And that persecution, um, you know, creates uh, both trauma and also a possibility for identification in a certain sense.
1: I think there's a, that's all right. I think, I I agree with that. I think there was, there's another context also, which is the prompt for the essay was uh, given to us by Edmund White, he was creating an anthology called Loss Within Loss that appeared in 1999 from the University of Wisconsin Press. Uh, and you know, he asked all of us who were contributing to write about an artist who had died of AIDS and to try to take into consideration like, what had been lost. And This was in the aftermath of, uh, of the arrival of the cocktail which saved so many lives. You know, and so the, the artist that I chose was, uh, someone who, actually, I feel like lover is a strong word for, for what we were, you know, it was a kind of, um, he, I had been, as I'll, I'll read from it shortly, but like, uh, he was a, he was a crush, basically, more than the, more than that. And we went out, we dated for a while, um. I think, you know, the, the thing that had struck me about his life and why I wanted to write about him was that he had died just before the arrival of the cocktail. And uh, he had all these aspirations for his life. And in some way, I, I wanted to memorialize him. So it's kind of a grave song, even as it's also a biographical portrait that's created with... A lot of, uh, a lot of reporting that I did as well.
0: And I think there's a moment in that in that piece where you say you talk about what happens when an artist dies, right? And you say, when an artist dies young, there's always talk of the paintings unpainted, the books unwritten, which points to some imaginary storehouse of undone things, and not to the imagination itself, a far richer treasure, lost. And I wonder if you want to talk about, that Im- imagination that's been lost, and you know, and whether you think that we, speaking broadly as a culture, have recovered from that loss.
1: I don't know that we'll ever get to know. You know, I mean, the AIDS crisis is technically, I mean, there's still technically no cure for AIDS, right? Um. Uh, nothing that's like, it's a you know, prep is the first sort of. Victory our community has had for just pleasure, you know in a long time, uh, and even that is in the context of it being a drug that not everyone can afford, and availability is uh, thus problematic, and the codes of it are are thus also you know you know it becomes a kind of economic privilege to be able to be on it um, and And so I guess I'm thinking again of like, you know, just to go back to George Sand, uh, this French woman writer who who was able to successfully kind of live out her vision, write her vision down and influence everybody from like the the Russian realists to the Brontes uh, to French feminism itself. Like, I think that's what I mean by the imagination that's lost, you know, like, like there's all the works, certainly, but there's also like the, the vision collectively that the works uh, communicate to the culture and that uh, is taken up by people maybe who've not even ever read her you know but you know now she exists for a lot of us outside of France as a kind of caricature, a woman in pants at a bar in a movie, you know uh, smoking a cigar. Uh, but when she did that, Women could be arrested for wearing pants, um, And that context in the movies is often not related, you know. Um, uh, she did that so she could enter men's spaces and do things that men did. And, uh, and again, that's, that, that's what I mean by that imagination, by that vision that's lost. So in a sense, like, we'll never really know what was his.
0: I wonder if you want to read from that story now. Great.
1: I'm a minor character in Peter's story. Peter David Kelleran, Peter D. Kelleran, as he liked to appear in print, was a painter. He died in his bed at the age of 33 on the afternoon of May 10th, 1994, at the Maitre Hospice in San Francisco where he had been admitted after deciding he could no longer care for himself in his apartment at the edge of town. There was a solar eclipse that day, and his passing occurred during it. He had spoken with his mother that morning on the phone. His dementia had parted enough for him to tell her that he loved her. And then he started to go, his friend Laura Lister says. The room was full of women friends of Peter's, and they laid hands on him in a circle. Laura recalls the phone ringing, and she shook her hands off him to answer it. He lunged up off the bed. He went slowly. I begged him to go, begged him to let go at that point. He needed to go. He wouldn't go, though, Laura says. And then one of the male volunteers came in and he took Peter's hand in his. You could see the change, like a light came over him, and he was gone. All the people there with him at the end, I can never thank them enough. They were all so beautiful, so strong, his mother, Jill Kelleran, says from her home in Chicago. They did what I physically could not do. Peter's death was tearing me apart, and I literally could not be there. They cared for him to the end, and I'll always be grateful to them for that. We were there until he grew cold, Peggy Sue said, a friend who was present. My tree, being a Buddhist place, he lie in state. So we sat with him. I first saw him when I worked at the Castro's, a different light bookstore, a gay and lesbian bookstore that in those days doubled as a reference library and community center. I was 22 years old then. Peter was 28, tall and broad-shouldered and thin. He had a wide Irish frame and usually wore leather, a motorcycle jacket, boots. A dyed blue tuft of hair glowed across his forehead. I'd seen him walking through the Castro and I'd seen him at demonstrations. A year would pass before I'd hear his voice speaking to me. Our store was the first in the country to have a section devoted entirely to AIDS HIV issues. It was located in the front beside the cash register. I supposed the first day I saw Peter that he'd either circumverted recently or had recently decided to do something about it. I saw many people in this way on their first few days and I was forever inventing some story about them never mentioned to anyone, simply to fill the hours. I was often the first person that they had to deal with after being diagnosed, a bookstore clerk who would show them the short shelf of books, expanding weekly, but still short. That day he just ran through the books and selected a few on strengthening the immune system, then paid when someone else was at the register. I saw him leave. His blue eyes had a searchlight intensity and it seemed clear when he saw and what he didn't see. He didn't see me. I felt called and commanded by him immediately, and to this day I cannot say why it was, only that it was immediate and thorough. I was surprised by how much I wanted to be seen by him. That day in the store, after he didn't look at me, he moved quickly back out into the bustling sidewalk, the afternoon sunlight making long, crowded shadows. I didn't know his name or anything about him except that he was handsome in a way that made me lose my breath and he was hurrying away, and that he was possibly, probably, positive. In fact, when I first saw Peter, he had been positive for three years. He wrote to me from Morocco, Laura says, of a trip he'd taken in 1986. He could only write about how sick he'd been, and after he got back and he tested positive, that was when we figured out that was his onset. He would keep it a secret for years, not telling anyone besides Laura who kept his secret as well. A lot of people were angry for me for that, she says, but people thinking about your death, that'll put you in the grave. Besides, she adds, if you didn't get your business dealt with when someone dies, that's your own fault. It every day before then to deal. I was not part of the group that was called when Peter died. I found out three months after his death in New York with my friend Corey, who had also moved east by now, and we were speaking about our friends back in San Francisco, when he said, well, after Peter died, I felt like he'd been cleaning a gun it emptied into me. Sorry, Corey said, thought you knew. Hate that when people don't know. When I arrived in San Francisco, there was no way to find the Castro on any map. People were forever calling the bookstore for directions to the neighborhood. In my group, there was a sense that we were a wave arriving on the west coast from the east, post-collegiate youngsters seeking and finding a paradise of cheap apartments and thrift stores bursting with the old athletic t-shirts and jeans and flannel shirts we all prized. I remember when I put the empty clothes together with the empty apartments on an ordinary sunny afternoon, walking down the sidewalk to work. There in a blanket set a pair of freshly polished black leather steel-toed boots, 12-hole lace-ups, gleaming in the light of the morning. As I approached them, feeling the pull of the hill, I drew up short to examine the rest of the sidewalk sale. Some old albums, Queen and Sylvester, three pairs of jeans, two leather wristbands, a box of old t-shirts, a worn watch, the hands still moving. A pressed leather belt, western style, cowboy boots, the same size as the steel toes. I tried the steel toes on and took a long look at the salesman as I stood up, feeling that they were exactly my size. This man was thin, thin in a way that was immediately familiar, hollowing from the inside out. His skin reddened and his brown eyes looked over me as if lightning might fall on me out of that clear afternoon sky. And I knew then as I paid $20 for the boots that they'd been recently emptied, that he was watching me walk off in the shoes of the newly dead, and that all this had been happening for some time now. I lived in San Francisco for two years, arriving right after I left college in 1989. When I say I was part of a group, I mean I was part of a group of activists who divided our time and energy among a number of organizations and affinity groups. Act Up and Queer Nation were the seeds of a great deal of what happened there, what happens there to this day. We engaged in direct action protests, spent our free time discussing new protests and the ways in which our past protests had been perceived. We thought about politics and its relationship to our personal lives to the point Personal was political because that was all there was. We had bitter feuds and disputes, we had angry meetings, we had celebrations, we had vigils and parties, made mistakes and made amends. The average member was 23, HIV negative, white and college educated, usually gay or lesbian and from another part of the country. I was 22, HIV negative, Amerasian, college educated and from another part of the country. Pictures of me at the time show a thin, dark-haired young man who seems inordinately happy for someone who spent a good deal of his time wanting to be dead. They all show me smiling. This young man I was drove a motorcycle, worked at a bookstore, hung out with drag queens who didn't attend meetings of any kind, and was known to dance on a bar or two. He was a member of ACT UP San Francisco before the bitter split of the group, a member of Queer Nation, and an intern at Outlook, a queer academic journal. He was on the media committee of ACT UP and had a reputation at first for dating no one, and then for having dated everyone. He hollowed his desire to die with the knowledge that other people were dying who wanted to live, and this was the single strongest motive for his participation in direct action AIDS activism. Being an activist meant, among other things, never being alone, and being alone was when he got into trouble, and so he made sure he was never alone. Why am I telling this story? I am, as I've said, a minor character, out of place in this narrative, but the major characters of all these stories from the first 10 years of the epidemic have left. The men I wanted to follow into the future are dead. Finding them had made me want to live, and I did, I do. I feel I owe them my survival. The world is not fixed and the healing is still just past my imagining, though perhaps it is closer than it was. For now, the minor characters are left to introduce themselves and take the story forward. Thank you.
0: So maybe now we should take a few questions from the audience. Not all at once, please.
1: Well, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, what the question is: of How do you create a sense of place and of event, and time historical time event?
0: Time, like a, yeah.
1: um, you know, I think there's a a lot of what I do when I write an essay is I try to research uh, what was going on at the time because oftentimes there are historical influences that impacted what was happening in ways that I'm not entirely aware of. Um, I've always had an obsession with current events since I was a little kid. I was like Mr. Current Events Quiz in uh, middle school. And um, and so the the way that I the way that I write things is sort of it starts. It started out with this exercise, uh, writing exercise, that uh, that Annie Dillard assigned to us when I took her class at Wesleyan. She was very blunt. and She said, "You know, you want to write about your hometown, but what do you know about your hometown? Do you know the major industries? Do you know when it was settled? Do you know uh, what has shaped?" uh The town at the time that you arrived your family arrived to the town, or at the time you yourself were born into that town, um, and I think people people we like to think that we live a little apart from history, like it's something that washes over us um, and not like that we are all intimately attached to it, a part of how it is happening all the time, you know and uh, you know, everything from you know uh, the redlining of neighborhoods to the GI Bill, uh, to anti-miscegenation laws being passed or lifted—you know—all these things were all affecting all of us, everyone in this room, creating us. You know, and having a sense of that, uh, looking at like what exactly shaped you—that um, that that does a lot, uh, and can be something that. It may be something that ends up in the story, but it may just create a consciousness in you that shapes the story that you tell uh, in relationship to it. You know, like the difference, for example, between, say, you know, my father who arrived from Korea to the United States in the 60s versus uh, all of the Koreans who came here in the 80s, you know, fleeing uh, the regime then um, is is a big difference. Uh, and even though um, I recognize them as part of a community that I belong to, I also have to accept that they arrived here for different reasons, they have a different experience that I need to pay attention to and listen to. Those kinds of things, I guess, help shape it. Does that answer that question? So the the question is, how do you know when to stop that kind of research because it's the most fun to do? uh, I think what happens is, is you, have, you have an intuition that lifts up out of the research and you feel the, you feel the urge to go write it down. I think that's, that's when you know the signal to stop and move back to the work itself. Um, yeah, it's a movement back and forth. You know? um, when I was writing The Queen of the Night, uh, a historical fiction novel set in the 19th century, uh, I, got, I got some advice from my friend, Sabina Murray, who has written a great deal of historical fiction, and her advice to me was uh, try to read your research over at night before you go to sleep um, so that you dream through it, like so that it falls through your dreams. And then uh, wake up in the morning and try writing then uh, and see if it's, if it's different. Um, so I think that that's another tactic that's possibly quite helpful. So part of the reason why this book exists is because, oh, sorry. Yes, uh, I'll repeat the question. Uh, I've been writing. You've been writing for a long time. Uh, what do you do when you get stuck? Um, so, uh, the essays in this book were written over about twenty years, and uh, I, when I was doing my tenure case, I was going through and I discovered that I'd written seventy essays, <laughs> uh, and. So this is a, this is kind of what I was doing when I was trying to write *The Queen of the Night*, uh, as well as when I was trying to write *Edinburgh*. So it's sort of the it's sort of the backstairs to those novels, in a sense. And I guess the answer to the question then is, every time I got stuck, I tried to write something else, you know. And um, and that's that's kind of what happened. So I I could put out another essay collection next year or the year after. Uh, with some more of these, uh, of that group of seventy. There's there's more now even, um, but I think, uh, we'll see, I think I'm probably gonna be working on a, a novel next. I think it, the, the impulse to ke- is just to keep moving so you're not just sort of sitting there. You know, I think even sometimes people think of like social media as a waste of a writer's time, but I had a friend, a writer friend, she was doing an interview and she wrote to me about a tweet of mine that she printed out and pinned to her desk. Um, and uh, You know, Twitter is one of those things that I do when I'm stuck, you know. Uh, it's kind of like text messaging with the world. <laughs> um, and it, it, I'm very ambivalent about it. I've been ambivalent about social media and the Internet from the beginning. But... Uh, I think ambivalent is—it uh, turns out quite productive. <laughs> so, um, you know, and some of the some of the essays in here, are like a hundred things about writing a novel that began as a blog post, for example, um, and uh, there was—do you remember that sort of? This is like going to take you way back to like 2009 Facebook. Do you remember, like, 20 things about me? 20 things you don't know about me? Um, that's actually, like, a great exercise for first lines. Like, if you do that 20 things you don't know about me, you can generate 20 first lines that you could use for uh, essays, stories, novels, whatever. Just, like, um, it's not it's not entirely a waste of time. I don't, if you do it now, I don't suggest that you post it on Facebook. Um, you, we all probably should be... Off of Facebook, to be honest, given what we know now, but, um, but it's you can can turn those uh, turn those moments into more writing, instead of feeling like it's just gassing up your friends. Oh, I'm I'm definitely the main character in the book. the uh, The question is, uh, you know, you said that you weren't the main character in that essay, and in the book as a whole. How is that important? But but I am a main character in the book. I wasn't trying to say that I wasn't a main character in the book. I mean, the essays are, uh, are definitely about different things besides me. Um, but, but they have me in common. And I think the, you know, with the personal essay, the writer is trying to act as both the, the instrument through which the, the essay is perceived for the reader um, as well as the writer of it. And it's a very unusual experience, where you have to be aware of what you would ordinarily neglect to say. You know, like The biggest problem, I think, with most personal essays is that they lack the descriptive power of fiction, um, because the writer is often writing about something that they know well, and so they forget to describe it, um, because it's familiar to them. So they never think that someone would need to know what their mother looks like. You know, uh, when they're writing about their mother or they don't think to even describe themselves at the time that they're writing about it and all those things are the kinds of things that you do have to figure out how to do uh... in order to set the stage because you know especially with first-person narratives you're creating something that has an I character which is you at the time of the essay and then the I narrator which is the person who is telling the story person who knows how it turns out. The eye character doesn't know that. And calculating that distinction, how it matters to how the story is told, is something that you have to be in control of throughout. I think we're still seeing that in the stories that are getting told, right? Um, There's a new movie, After Louis by Vincent Gagliostro. It just came out. That's kind of about that intergenerational divide. Um, And I'm thinking about a friend of mine who like, he and his boyfriend both, his much younger boyfriend, both converted around the same time. And for my friend, it was incredibly devastating because he was part of my generation. For his boyfriend, it was like, oh, okay, I have to go on meds. Like, it was difficult, but it wasn't like, he wasn't, he didn't have to also go on depression medication like my friend did. Um, and they actually broke up because he couldn't handle what was happening with my friend emotionally, you know? Um, and that was an interesting, like my friend felt like he had let down all of us in some way, that there was some way in which he had failed, like our sort of collective mission of the time, you know, whereas his boyfriend was like, well, that really sucks. Now I go to the doctor, you know? And that's like one of those distinctions I think that is sometimes hard to see around. If that makes sense. Hi. Right. So the question is,, uh, uh, what, you know, what are my thoughts about the opioid crisis? Um, uh, the, qu- the questioner comes from a kind of uh, AIDS activist background. Is that roughly public health, um, and is wondering, like, what it would take to communicate the sense of crisis. Because uh, I think what you're saying, if I understand it right, is that your sense of the opioid crisis is that it rivals the AIDS crisis, as it was in the 80s and 90s. It's, there are it's com- proximate. Com- there's some comparisons, com- right, com- yeah. Without colonizing or making a false equivalency. Um, you know, I think the in some ways, like what part of what ACT UP was trying to argue for at the time that I was a part of it then was for accountability from pharmaceutical companies. You know, we we just had this, I don't know if you saw this in the news, the, the Goldman Sachs executive who talked about how there's no money in curing cancer, you know. Um, and uh, back then we were trying to say th- these same people, like for them, there's no money in curing AIDS. It's something that was a part of uh, Beats per minute. The uh, that wonderful movie about Act Up Paris, you know, which I think is part of the part of that group of stories that we're starting to see coming forward, telling telling us about what that was like then. So I do see like I do see continuity between the crises that is related to American healthcare and its relationship to pharmaceutical companies, you know, and I think that, um, uh, you know. ACT UP was saying healthcare is a right back in 1990, 1991, um, and people thought we were, uh, you know, nutty hippies to be insisting on it. Um, but we were warning about the for-profit healthcare model that has since probably taken as many lives or more than the AIDS crisis. You know, like people who have died simply because they didn't have access to healthcare or didn't have access to continued care. You know, it's hard to know how many we've lost just to that alone, you know? So it's definitely, um, it's definitely, what I think for me, the opioid crisis is in the context of that, you know? And the times that I've taken them, they're not even great painkillers, <laughs> you know? The, right, like, yeah, like, um, uh, it feels like a really weird pillow on the inside of my head, but it didn't really take any of my pain away. I, I used taking it for dental stuff, but, uh, I remember just not using them after that, but feeling like, oh, that's that that pillow, you know. Anyway, um, I'll take one more. Yes. Thank you. So that w- he was saying, like, please do more episodes of Food for Thought, which is a podca- queer writer podcast um, that I have get- been a guest on twice now. Um, so, yes, I will. I'll, I'll tell them that, that you gave them a shout out. Um, I love them it's it's all it's a lot of love I'm sort of the I'm sort of their daddy auntie um, sometimes they call me the Pod father um, uh, you know and there is you know there is a lot there is a lot of writing advice in this book um for for those who who want it It's not strictly speaking a how to book as you can tell maybe from what I've read and talked about here tonight um I do think of it. <coughs> excuse me. I do think of it in some ways as uh, being about the things that I could not fit in my first novel, um, the way in which a life is so big and novels trace a path through it. You know, um, this was these are the outskirts to that first one. Anyway, uh, thank you all so much for coming out tonight for this event. Uh, you're beautiful. Thank you to my lovely uh, co-conspirator, <laughs> Matilda <you>. Bernstein Sycamore, um, <laughs> whose uh, novel, Sketch to See, is, uh, is just a total thrill ride. Um, though it was for me. Uh, and, and I blurbed it uh, happily. Um, and thank you to the lovely people at Hugo House uh, who always do such a great job when I come out here I really appreciate you guys existing, and I'm looking forward to celebrating your new home when it's built, so thank you all so much.